We just came out of a series of messages about trust. And we're going into another one because this year, as we look at our mission statement, we're really kind of centering in on the whole idea of how do we trust God. Now, you may be coming into a situation in your life, even right now, where you say, well, what I see here and experience is not what I read in the Bible. And therefore, I'm having a crisis of faith in my life, a crisis of trust. I recall reading a story in one of the books, Disappointment with God, by Philip Yancey. And this young man wrote uh, Dr. Yancey um, a letter based on a previous book, and it read something like this. He said, you know, I've been, I feel like I was saved, but I had a bunch of rules and regulations to live by. I finally went off to college to study for the ministry, had all these books, studying things, praying about things, and things were not working out the way I envisioned that they would work out. And I had many prayer requests before the Lord, and it seemed like none of them were really, or at least not enough of them were really coming to fruition. And so I was so frustrated one night, I just said, God, if you don't answer this prayer in this way by tomorrow morning, I'm going to forget the whole thing. Well, you can guess what happened. He woke up the next morning. That prayer was not answered, whatever that prayer was. He took all of his books, took them out into the backyard, burned them all, walked away from the faith, as it were, at that point for good, at least that point in, the, in, in history back in the 1980s. And so what would cause a guy to do that? What would cause us to doubt what God has shown us so easily in the light times of life, in the knowledgeable times of life? It's because we either do not grasp the real nature of God and the character of God, or we've forgotten who He is. Someone once said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For we tend by secret laws of the soul to move toward our mental picture of God. And so when you think about that for just a moment, how, how crucial it is, if we're going to have great faith in God, for us to understand who God is. And so for the next seven weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at. And we're going to be centering, looking at the character of God and faith, centered on three things. Number one, can he? Number two, will he? And number three, where do we come into play in all this? What's our responsibility in it? And so those three things over the next six weeks following. But this morning, I want to give an introduction and look at all three of them this morning as we look. And then we're going to peel back the layers in the weeks to come on each one of these issues. We're going to ask ourselves the question, is he there? Is he good? And am I ready? Am I ready for the blessing of God? We open up to Hebrews chapter 11, and this is called the faith chapter of the Bible. It starts off with a great description that we've gone over before about faith being the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's trusting in the Word of God. But before all this, I think it's very needy that we look at chapter 10, because here's what the writer says. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Now, confidence in the Bible is public faith. It's a public declaration, and it's courage of who you are, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The idea here is that you do the will of God, then you wait, and God, if you endure, God's going to deliver. For yet a little while, and he is coming one, will come and will not delay. So right in the midst of all this persecution, that the Hebrew Christians are going through at this time, uh, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, comes forward and says, look, you know, hold on because Jesus is coming, but my righteous one shall live by faith. For he shrinks back, 
My soul has no pleasure in him. For we are not of those, he says to these people, who shrink back, who are destroyed, but those who are, have faith and preserve their souls. He said, look, I have confidence in you. That once I share the things I'm about to share with you, I have confidence that you're going to persevere, that you're going to have that enduring faith. And so as we look at Hebrews chapter 11, then we find one key verse that centers in, in the, more than verse 1, verse 6 is where it is in the Christian life. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. So three things. Is he there? All in this one verse. Is he good? And am I ready? What am I, what am I supposed to do? Well, first of all, is he there? Notice it says that who comes to God must believe that he exists. Now, you look in the Bible, and there's all kinds of passages in the Bible that talk about God. Very few talk about the proof of the existence of God. One of those passage, we, passages we can find in Romans chapter 1. So I'm going to briefly look at this passage and then get back to our text. It says, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they were without excuse. Now here's the picture that we find theologically uh, in Romans chapter 1. Paul is saying there's two different types of revelation, two ways that God reveals himself. One is general revelation, that's basically through nature and other things like that. And then specific revelation, which is Jesus Christ and the Bible. And now we can't receive Christ, we can't know enough just by looking at general revelation. But he's saying by looking at generation, uh, the, the general uh, revelation of God, you can understand that God does exist. We look at nature and we say, there must be, <clears throat> must be a God out here somewhere. Well, the arguments for God are many. Two of the oldest ones that go back all the way to Aristotle, you will find the cosmological argument for God and the moral argument for God. The cosmological arg argument basic, basically is cause-effect. Since there's a watch, there must be a watchmaker. And he's saying, look, you look at the rivers, you look at the trees, you look at the lakes, you look at the ocean, and you realize, wow, somebody had to create all this. So it's a cause and effect. Now, people will come back and say, well, what about the Big Bang Theory? That's how it all got started. You know, had a Big Bang, and then all of this stuff came into existence. Well, that takes a measure of faith as well. You understand that. But also, we have to ask ourselves the question, then where did the bang come from? Where did the matter come from to have the Big Bang? Well, somebody else would say, well, what about the evolution of it all? Well, even if you follow the evolution, it, again, it shows how matter evolved, but not where it came from. So what you're saying is, is that matter is eternal. The physical things of life, somewhere, the amoeba in the ocean, something started all of it, but it had to be eternal. On the other hand, those who believe in the existence of God would say, no, God is the only one that's eternal. Now, so we ask ourselves the question, well, if, God, if God's not there, then matter must be eternal. But you can't explain that because you're living in one realm. You're living in one dimension. You know, if you look at uh, sci-fi channel or whatever, you're living in one dimension, okay? And the dimension is that the physical is all there is. 
And so there is no explanation of where the physical came from. However, if you believe in another dimension, you believe in God, then there's all kinds of other possibilities as well. Now, it doesn't prove that the Bible's right. It doesn't prove that Jesus Christ is God. It just proves, or it shows, rather, there must be something else because there's, it's impossible to explain where the origin of man came from, the origin of the universe, just simply through matter. It didn't always, something had to create it, but if we say something had to create God, no, we don't know about God. It's in a different realm, different dimension. We don't understand it all, can't understand it all. The other argument that's made here is the moral argument of God, and that is, it says, they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. Well, somebody come along and say, well, I don't believe in God because there's suffering in the world. And if you were to ask me, through my Christian life, have I ever had any doubts? The, the answer would be yes. Where did those doubts come from? I would have to say basically questioning the evil and suffering in the world. And I think that's where many people are. But somebody says, well, I believe that there is uh, moral evil in the world. And I, I look at the world and I, I think to myself, my goodness, with all the suffering going on, the starvation going on, the needs of the world going on, how in the world can you possibly believe in a good God? How can you do that? Well, what you're saying then is there is a suffering and an evil in the world. Well, if there is a moral evil in the world, you must be comparing it to something. You must be. So what are you comparing it to? Well, you're comparing it to what you think is right, that which is righteous, that which is good. So what we're really saying is there's a moral evil, therefore there has to be a moral good. If there's a moral good, there has to be a moral law giver. There must be someone, something that says, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And you say, well, I've got the answer for that, Pastor. It's just simply this. It's culture. Whatever the majority says kind of rules. I mean, how can you expect the majority, of, say, of a nation to possibly be wrong about something when there's so many people involved? Well, for example, the prisons at Auschwitz, during World War II, Viktor Frankl wrote about this. The gas chambers of Auschwitz were the ultimate consequences of the theory that man is nothing but the product of heredity and the environment, or his environment, or as the Nazis like to say, of blood and soil. <clears throat> I'm absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz and other places were ultimately prepared not in the same, some ministry or something else in Berlin, but rather at the desk and lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. What's he saying here is, look, what about all those six million Jews that died in the gas chambers in Nazi, in Nazi land, in Germany? Well, I can tell you what, no law was broken there. I know that to be sure. There's not a debate there. There was nothing against the law at all about killing or even experimenting on the Jews. Now, there may have been a law in Russia, but Stalin killed more Jews than, than Hitler did during his reign in Russia. And I, I don't think any laws were broken there. But I know they weren't in Germany. And so the majority of the people in the leadership of Germany says it's fine to kill the Jews. But we know that that's not true. We know that every society changes as it goes along. And every society, we look back on another society and say they're wrong. And somebody's going to look back on us and say, boy, we made mistakes. So where do you get the truth. Now, I look at all this, and please understand this. I could go on and on and on, but most of the people who were once atheists and then come to faith in Jesus Christ do not come because of some argument or some proof or some apologetic. 
That may make you think a little bit, but basically guys like T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, all admitted they didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ because they suddenly discovered it, but it was just revealed to them. They woke up, you might say, one day and just say, I know there's a God. Now, who is he? How did they get that? Well, not only because the Bible not only talks about <clears throat> that God revealed himself in nature, but he has also revealed himself personally to us. In verse 19 of the passage we just read, it says, <clears throat> excuse me, for what can a man be known about is God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. God has shown us his glory. He's shown us his person. How does he, does that? How does he do that? Even as a child, it's put into your heart and mind. You just know it. You know the old joke about the little boy coming up to his daddy. He says, Daddy, does God know that we don't believe in him? You know, it's that idea. It's people. Now, I know that there's other guys like uh, Lee Strobel looked at the resurrection, saw that it had to be true and came to faith in Christ. There are places like that. There are people like that. But most of the time, people just come to all these arguments, and finally they just get frustrated, and they just look up into heaven and say, I, the reason I'm so frustrated because I, I believe in you, but I don't want to. I really don't want that kind of world. And because of that profession, oftentimes they're led to the Lord. As we look at this, during the next six weeks, we want to find out about this God. We want to find out what he's all about. Now, so, so what's the problem here? You know, you're, you're given the knowledge of God in your heart, but yet some, somebody here is looking at me and saying, look, I don't believe. I've studied the moral argument, the cosmological argument. I just don't believe in any of it. So what's happened to me? Well, the Bible says in Romans 1 that you've suppressed the truth and we exchange the truth. And we all do this in every area of our life. There's like a real truth and a truth that we can accept. Psychologists would call it a primary and a secondary truth. Here's what goes on in our life as far as, uh, first of all, suppressing the truth and then exchanging it. For example, you have an eight-year-old boy and, um, you know, he's a ball player. And for the life of you, he's eight years old and you cannot understand why he's not in the major leagues already. You know, what's going on? I mean, he was, you know, he's great. He's Walking before he was five, you know, and talking before he was seven. He's a genius. But the coach keeps benching him. You know, as a seventh grader, a seven-year-old, six-year-old, he played right field two innings a, a week. I mean, two innings a game. That's kind of the rule, right? Got to play at least that much. And so he's playing two innings, and you go to the first coach, and say, you just don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. My my boy is a great ball player. He's going to be great. You're just not giving him a chance. You're not coaching him well enough. And then the next year, you say the same thing to the next coach and the next coach. It could be your 8-year-old uh, your in a school, and you think, my goodness, he's not making good grades. I know. I, I'm, I'm so smart myself, <laughs> you know, that I know that my child should make better grades. So it's the teacher's fault. You see, the reality of, of it is, for example, in the first one, your eight-year-old will never make the major leagues. He's going to be probably good at something, but it's not going to be baseball. That's the truth. But it's a truth that you cannot accept because your eight-year-old keeps saying, I want to be a major league ball player. Well, everybody at eight years old wants to do something great, and that's the thing that I wanted to do. So you don't want to discourage them, but you can't blame it on everybody else. And so what do you do? You suppress the truth, then you exchange the truth on what you think that you can that is palatable to you. 
Now, you might say, well, I don't, I don't want a world where there's a God where there's a bunch of do's and don'ts and all that kind of stuff, somebody else controlling my life or Lord of my life. I don't want that. And so you suppress that and you substitute it with something else. Or, like many Americans do, they can't take the God necessarily of the Bible, the truth of Scripture. And so they substitute, they exchange that truth for a, a God of their own making. Uh, for example, they believe in a God of love. Where did you get that? Where do you get that there's a God, that God is a loving God? Where do we find that? And you say, well, I, I find that in nature. That's what people say. I find that in nature. You know, there I was, Pastor, you should have been there last summer. I was on the balcony of, of a hotel room and on the beach. And I looked out there, and the sun was coming up as I sipped on my latte. And I just thought, boy, there is a loving God in the universe. Look at that beauty. Come back in September when the hurricanes come through and level that building. You ever been part of a hurricane? You ever been in a hurricane before? Have you ever been in a, looked like a tornado? I saw a tornado coming right at me. And I was on a cruise. <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, so you have all this, you, you ever watch the Nature Channel or maybe National Geographic Channel, and you have these lions, they, they I don't know what the guy was doing with a camera, <laughs> chasing lions down. I have no idea how they're doing that. But anyway, he's chasing lions down with a camera. And all of a sudden, they jump on their prey and they rip it apart. Nature is violent. It's just violent. And so on the one hand, you can find the love of God. On the other hand, you can find evil and the wrath of God almost, really. So where do you find that? So, well, not me, Pastor. I find it in the Bible. I find it in the, okay, this is the same Bible where we're looking in the Bible and we find things that we don't like and we cut them out. Or culture says, hey, look, you've got to have another view of that. You've got to find another view. And so if it takes 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, find another view because that is not an acceptable truth. I've got to suppress that truth and exchange the truth for something that I can, I can grasp, something that is comf more comfortable to me. And so... We look at this and God says, no, you, you've got to believe that I am. You've got to believe in who I am, the all-powerful one, the sovereign one of the universe. And I have spoken to you through a specific revelation called the Word of God. You say, well, why do I have to believe him anyway? That makes sense to me. Why doesn't he just appear? If he's real, let me see him. Well, there's people in the Bible that saw him. Adam, go back all the way to the book of Genesis, he saw God. Saw him every day. In fact, I, we don't know how long that went on. But one day he just thought, hmm, I got a better idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impress God. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to be just like God by taking of this fruit. You, there you are meeting with God every morning. I mean, I'm not talking about devotional time. I'm talking about you're sitting there and he shows up in the seat right next to you, right across from you. And you think you're, you're just in awe. You fall down on your face. You worship God. You're, you're not worthy to be in his presence. And the next day, you feel a little better about it. And the next day, better. And the next day, a week later, man, you feel pretty comfortable about God sitting in the chair next to you. And then a month goes by and five months goes by, go by. And suddenly, ah, oh, you're not that impressed anymore. I mean, after all, you're kind of used to this. God, let me show you. I, I'm pretty smart. Let me show you I've got a better idea than you do. I'm going to impress you. It would just go on and on and on. God says, no, at some point of all that relationship, 
you've got to learn to trust me. What do we say about trust? You came in, sat down on the pew because you were relying on the pew. You were resting in the pew, and that's what action faith is all about. Faith is believing God. Trust is the action behind that faith, and God requires that action. Do you really believe him? And he says, look, I'm going to give you enough faith. I'm going to give you enough revelation to believe me if you receive my word into your heart. Well, we look at that, and we look at the second question then. Is God going to do it? I mean, is, is he good? Is he good for us? I want you to notice they were asking the question in Hebrews, does it pay to serve God? That's what they were asking. Well, here's what he says. He says in verse 6, you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. A reward. Well, there's a reward in this life and in the life to come. What about this life? The Bible says in Hebrews 10.35, let me read that verse to you one more time. It says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You've prayed about things. You've poured out your heart to God. You're praying about your brother, your sister, that one that sits beside you maybe at school, over here at uh, Oviedo High or Haggerty High, and, or, or maybe at the university. And you're, you're praying for that, and boy, they just never seem to respond. They never seem to really change. But here's what the Bible says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock. Just keep knocking and it will be open to you. Mark eleven twenty four. one of my favorite prayer verses. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus said, whatever you ask in prayer, believe. That means you, already, you believe so strongly it's already in the palm of your hand. You already have it. That you received it, that you have already received it. And it will be yours. But then he says, abide in me, my words abide in you. And you ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. What is this all abiding stuff? It's going to bring us into our last point. But let me say this. That God is about blessing you. He is about rewarding you. I recall the story of Mel Trotter, an old evangelist from what, the 19th century and uh, early 20th century. And Mel Trotter was a, a guy that traveled the country preaching the Bible. And one of the big things he had going for him was this testimony. He was an alcoholic, and he was so far gone, all of his family praying for him. He had a child, a little toddler to die. He wasn't even around for the time of the death. And he shows up at the funeral, leans in, this is his testimony, he leans into the casket as though he's praying and begging God and crying, and he has real tears coming down. But the only reason he did it was so he could take the shoes off the little baby and go sell them so he can get him a drink. That's how bad he was. But yet people were praying for him, and God saved him. I know the story, in fact, uh, it was way back when I was in college, a guy gets up and shares his testimony, he said that, when he was in high school and then college, uh, he still lived at home early in college, and he was rebellious, and he was just kind of going his own way, doing his own thing, but his mother was a godly mother, and she prayed for him and prayed for him. He said, I'd come home at night, sometimes at 12, sometimes at 1, sometimes at 2, and it's like she had an alarm clock going on because she would be beside her bed on her knees and praying. Sometimes the door would even be cracked, but most of the time it was closed, but he could hear her praying, he said, it used to drive me nuts that she was praying for me. I hated it. But through those prayers, God came and blessed. 
But dear friends, listen. God's blessings are so great that he, we cannot stand all the blessings of God here on earth. That's why he, uh, he provides something in heaven. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break into steel, but lay up for your treasure, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Luke 14, Jesus said, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In the last days, God says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, he says, it is written, what I have seen nor ear have heard, nor the heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Listen, God's not going to spoil us here on earth. He knows when to bless and when to not. But our blessings come here. But he says, you need to endure that you would receive the promise. What kind of promise? Not just stuff here, but in the life to come. And the question is, are we live, living in the secular, the now? Remember, that's what it means, the now. Are we living in the now where everything now matters, but in the afterlife, eh, whatever. We'll worry about it when we get there. That's not the way God has led us uh, to live. And so we look and we ask ourselves the question then, what about me? You know, I'm going to share something with you that, I mean, I could walk out of here this morning and, and certainly in the next couple of weeks, you're going to, the crowd's maybe going to feel that way because I'm going to be preaching on a specific part of this and not the whole thing like I am this morning. But you could walk out of here this morning thinking, okay, now the Bible says God is all powerful, God is all loving, God is full of grace, He's full of truth. If I just trust Him, you know, hey, everything, all my prayers are just going to be answered. But then it doesn't happen. And you think, well, okay, I'm going to go back next week to see him defend God. And I catch that a lot of pastors are doing that. We're defending God on the fact that he's not answering prayer. Or we'll just say, oh, if you'll do all this and this and this and this, he'll give you peace and he'll give you joy. Never mind the prayers are not going to be answered. It doesn't matter because you have the peace and joy. That's not what the Bible The Bible says you're going to be rewarded. But what does it say there? He says there's a condition to it. You see, I would be less than your friend today if I let you go out thinking there are no there's not a condition to this. What does it say in this passage? He says, those who seek him. He says, I will reward those who seek him. What does that mean? It means a diligence there. It's intense. It's an intense word. And it means to seek out earnestly, Two, 200, over 200 times in the Bible, it tells us to seek the Lord. Seek him while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Everywhere in the Bible, every time we turn to it, it says seek him. Now here's what happens in our life. Here's part of it. It's like we're, <clears throat> we're celebrating maybe your 20th birthday or your 30th birthday. Let's say your 20th. 20th birthday, and you've got all these college friends and friends from high school, and they're throwing you a big party. It's a big deal. 20, 20 years of living. Man, never thought you'd make it that far, you know? And so you're going to have this party, and you know, you find out where it is, and you don't show up. And you say, well, you know, maybe you don't like parties. Well, just pretend. Go along with me here. You like parties. And you like the birthday cake, and you like all the presents, and you like the celebration, you like the appreciation. But you decide, I got something else better to do, I just won't go. Guess what? You're not going to get the blessings to that party. You know, it's not going to happen again. 
You missed it. You were out of the, the path that you needed to take to receive that blessing. Now, here's what happens. We, we lose the path of blessing of God, the will of God for our life. We go off on a tangent somewhere, and God's not going to bless us there. Why would he bless us and we find favor with God and, and answer our prayer when we're way off here in the wilderness somewhere? It's only going to encourage us to stay away from God more and more. It's the wrong thing. Just like a parent does not encourage bad behavior, God doesn't encourage us either in that way. So we've got a path of blessing, if I could just use this aisle. And all along the path, there are gifts, 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 gifts that God wants to give us along the way, but we're not there. So we missed the gift at five years old. We missed another gift that God wants us to get, well, not five, but say at 15. We, we miss another gift because we're out of the will of God at 20. We miss another gift at 25. We miss, in fact, it's not just one gift, it's things every day. But we're not where God wants us to be in order to receive that blessing. Because we're out of the will of God. There's a condition here that we seek God. Now, the question has, has to come up in our mind. God, is it me? You know, is, is it me? Is it not you? Is it, can, I not blank, can I not exchange the truth of God for a lie? I mean, I don't want to believe that I'm not right with you. I, I don't want to believe that I've got to seek you with all my heart. There's a lot of things I'm seeking in life. I don't want to believe that. So I'm going to believe, God, that you're supposed to bless me anyway. And in fact, he does. Even when you're not in the path of blessing. I mean, you're here, you're living. He's provided for you. He answers prayer all the time, even when we're not there. But the, oh, the big things, just not there for us because we're not there. But God, I don't want to believe it's up to me. I believe it's just up to you. You're not giving it, so it's your fault. It's all your fault. So I'm not going to follow you. I'm going to be like the guy and disappointed with God. I'm just going to forget the whole thing. I'll be a done. I'm done. But it could be us. It could be me. wonder if it's me. wonder if God has all this stuff, not only his presence, not only his peace, not only the joy of the Lord, which is the most important thing, things in our life, but also the stuff that he wants to give us. If we don't seek him. Now, what are we talking about seeking him? Let me compare it to this. Suppose you're in a relationship, as say a young person, you're a college student, young adult, and you're seeking after a certain girl, certain guy, and you're thinking, that, well, you know, I'm in love, I'm in love, I don't know if they want me or not. So here's the guy, he sends the girl's fl girl flowers, he takes her out on a nice date, he's very sweet, he listens to every word that she says, he's seeking her. He's seeking her, but then after they get married, he doesn't listen to much, does he? Sometimes. He's no longer seeking. He's no longer seeking her, seeking her out. And he thinks to himself, I can't think of anything else. Man, it's just in my mind all the time. She's just, she's just there. I can't wait to see her. I can't be, wait to be around her. Wow, I just, I, you know, that's the kind of seeking we're talking about. It's the kind of seeking when you're desperate as a parent or a grandparent and you're praying for someone in your life, and you're just so desperate, and you just feel like, God, it's, it's got to happen now. It, that's seeking their well-being, that's seeking their good. This is the kind of seeking we're talking about. It's the kind of seeking that reads the Bible for all it's worth. It's the kind of seeking that says, I'm going to spend some time with God every day, and I'm going to be praying, and I'm going to be praying not only for things in my life, but I'm going to be lifting up my, my heart to God and worshiping him during that prayer time. I'm seeking him. He, he's on the throne of my life, and I want him more than anything else. Desperation, I guess, a little bit. 
my son Brandon, who's doing well, some of you ask about that. Their church in North Carolina is doing uh, really well. And um, think about taking some next steps. And, and so things are going good. But there was a time, you know, of all our children growing up, I would not have said that he was the one, as a teenager at least, seeking God more than the other two. In fact, I'd say maybe a little less. What, he was very involved in the youth group as far as attending, as far as doing things. He had a couple of mission trips we could tell just changed his life, particularly the one in Brazil. But um, he had his life planned out. Every, where everything's going to go, and it all fell apart while he was in school at Liberty University. Just things, just, he had a couple of things that were staples. This is what's going to happen, fell apart. And so he began to seek the Lord like he's never sought him before, and maybe very few people have. I don't know. But he's so much so that his friends, his roommates were worried about him because he'd leave a ball game to go study the Bible. He, he would leave a, a fellowship that they were a part of, even a biblical fellowship, to go and pray by himself, seeking out the Lord. We were talking one night <clears throat> at the conclusion of all that, and um, we were on the phone. He says, Dad, could it be, as I've been seeking God's will, God, what is the next step for my life, that the real prize, the real gift, the greatest gift of all is not his will or a gift, but it's God himself. And I said, I think you're right. God himself, seeking him earnestly. God, I want you on the throne of my life. God, there's something wrong with my life, and I want to give it to you. And faith says, my trust says, this is not the best thing for my life. God, in fact, I'm gonna, I want to be like Bill Bright, founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. I want to be like him when he get down on his knees every morning and say, God, I'm Bill, here's Bill, and I'm your slave. I'm the slave to Christ, the servant. Whatever you want me to do today, however you want to guide me, it's just up to you. There's, there's a man that sought the Lord. What about us? Could it, could it be us? Could it be? The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these other things shall be added unto you. You'll understand his will. You'll understand his ways. You'll understand the heart of God, the mind of God. You'll want what he wants. Yeah, the peace is going to come. Yeah, the joy is going to come. You're going to seek his face. And the answer, can you imagine the answers to prayer we would get if we sought the Lord? Can you imagine the blessings we were missing out on, but now we're in the path of blessing. Now we're seeking the Lord. And all the blessings come our way. Can you imagine what kind of life that would be? But we need to get started, don't we? Could it be us? Could it be not, not so much that God is not paying attention, that God's not for us, that God is not there for us? It's not that God's not all-powerful, not that he doesn't love us. But see, it's conditional on us seeking him. Are you seeking him today? So what about me and you? You, you and I. Let's not look at the secondary truth or not truth that it's somebody else's fault. Let's look at the real truth. Look at the real truth. It could be you just have to wait. It says that in this passage. It could be God's got something better, going to say no to your answer, your prayer, because he's got something better. But it could it be that we're just not where we need to be. I talked to a lady years ago, and um, she's talking to me. And I was sharing Christ with her, and she said, look, I used to go to a church, 
And I prayed that my husband would get saved. He didn't get saved. In fact, we're divorced now. He left me. And I have not had anything to do with God since. Well, I knew her situation. And I wanted to ask her the question, but I already knew the answer. Okay, are you in the, were you in the path of blessing? Were you where God wanted you to be? Were you right with God? Were you walking with God when you were praying those prayers? Because I know the answer was no. No. And I wasn't going to make her feel worse than what she felt. I let it go. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.